Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. G G G G, take me away. G G G G, take me today. Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This is part two of my talk with entrepreneur Cosmo Jones. Uh, Part one is right below this episode where we hear how he went from being a child actor on NBC to working uh, really pretty, some pretty dangerous jobs to uh, starting several companies that we'll hear about now. Pretty inspiring stuff. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, a podcaster, a filmmaker, or just like to take videos on your phone, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they have an app that'll make your life simpler. Okay, check out the show notes for uh, information on Cosmo, and you can subscribe and like this show, leave a review email the show, all that fun stuff. But most of all, just enjoy. Uh, what, what happened next? What led to your, because you're quite the entrepreneur, what led you to start your own company? Um... I, this would have been 98, and by then I was already, like, really hooked on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still early days, and design was, it wasn't really a place you could do design, but the second you could, which I would say would be about, like, 96, mm-hmm. um, that's when I started to, to get into it, and, you know, this, this web thing, I, it's no fad. Yeah, you realized the internet was not going anywhere. I realized that the internet was not going to go anywhere, mm-hmm. um, and I was reasonably confident about that. And, and at so, that time, it was it went it just recently went away from uh, modems to maybe DSL. Um, right before cable. No, we had one thing in between called ISDN. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. Which was just little faster little than the telephone. Little faster than dial-up. Right. A little more stable. Mm-hmm. So all this technology is, this hardware technology is making internet browsing become more commonplace. Yeah, that and computers uh, uh, becoming more powerful and people figuring out um, that, you know, websites don't have to just be a bunch of text. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, oh, okay, we're, we're starting to get into the very first, like, user interface, user experience for, mm-hmm. for web. Um, and so I started taking on just like freelance clients. Uh, I was, I had a pretty regular gig at this agency called the Strasbourg group in Santa Monica. And you know, that was like, they were a fairly legit boutique agency that did a lot of travel stuff. And was this, were you doing graphic design or web design? Just graphic. No, I was doing just graphic design. And that's by then I had, you know, done enough work. I had enough skills. And the other thing that really got me the, the constant work there was I was the one who knew how to keep all the computers running and, and network together mm-hmm. and could handle like all the, all the backups. We used to back up to this digital tape, you know, all the time. And so having, having all those technical skills also helped because I wasn't the greatest designer. Right. So, uh, I think that really helped me keep a, keep a job as I got better at design. Right. Do you feel like you're, Musical education and musical skills helped this understand I, the technology in some way. 
don't think so. No, okay. I really don't think I... Because sometimes there's a, there's a mathematics to music where people that, mm-hmm. especially people that studied music composition, music theory, there's like a math thing going on, exercising that part of your brain where it can parlay itself into more technical things. Yeah. Um, I, you know what comes to mind is, is less that, more about getting really good at troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you have like a... This is this would have been the nineties. Yeah, guitar rigs were insane in the nineties. Uh-huh. Like you did it now. You can show up to a gig with your vintage-looking Supro amp and a couple pedals and a guitar, being a cool hipster band. Yeah, but if you were a serious touring musician, you had to have the rack full of gear. You had your gear had to be at a certain level, right? And you'd be lugging a couple cabinets along with it, mm-hmm. and um you'd have a pretty elaborate pedal board system and there's just a lot of shit that could go wrong and so you'd learn to you'd learn to troubleshoot things and that was that was the same thing with computers uh and design is you spent back then you spent a lot more time um fixing issues with the computer while you were doing design because it just it wasn't as stable as as we enjoy today so you're constantly having problems and learning to solve them. Yeah. Um, you were always up against issues of running out of drive space. You were always up against maxing out your processors and just like ending up in these endless loops where you're trying to make Photoshop do something um, a little bit bigger than the computer thinks is right. and feels like doing. And that's kind of the foundation of entrepreneurship is seeing a problem and solving it. Yeah. I think I think that is is correct. You have to be somewhat of a self starter, um, and you have you have to be willing to like take it all the way uh, mm-hmm. to solving the problem. Yeah. If I was one of those people that would that stopped in the middle of fixing a problem, I probably wouldn't have right. ended up making businesses or it, anything. It, there's kind of a a goal orientedness yeah. to it. Yeah, it's all it's all about here's the problem. Uh the best outcome is is I fix it as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would go for is best outcome if in a live situation is fix it as fast as possible. Best outcome when you're recording or in the rehearsal was well crap, I hope nothing broke. Let's make sure everything's okay and let's let's fix it so I don't have to replace anything. Right. <laughs> so what was the first... So after that, you started getting into web design and yeah. you formed your own company. Space Dog was the first company with my good friend Freedom, also a musician. Mm-hmm. Seems like I only did things with musicians. And all the while, you were still playing music throughout this whole thing. The whole time. The whole time, yeah. yeah. So you really work in two jobs. Yeah, I never really ever considered music a job. Mm-hmm. Um, it never felt like a job because it was an out, it's an outlet. Yeah, I love yeah. doing. I love playing. I like both parts. I like playing live and I like recording. Yeah. Um. So I just enjoy the whole process. So it definitely didn't feel like work until right. until later, like when you're playing other people's music. But um, to stay on track, uh, you formed this. This is the first company that you formed. Yeah. Um. So we we did a couple small sites and then um. Freedom met this guy who worked for one of the early startups that had a lot of visibility. They were called JFAX. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were the uh, like a faxing for software. Yeah, <laughs> we're Jews and we fax. kosher kosher faxing. <laughs> um, no, it was a competitor. Like I think eFax came and okay. ate, ate them for breakfast. Like. Yeah, Facebook took down MySpace, but uh-huh. back in the day, uh, uh, well, JFAX I think was one subsidiary of like J two Communications. I think they had their fingers in a few things. Anyway, this guy had like a legit job, and um, and he was kind of brought on as the guy who was going to run the business, and he was going to invest money into it into and, your business, Space Dog. Yeah, because Space mm-hmm. Dog started with just Freedom and myself, and so then it then it became. Um, freedom myself and this other dude um and we actually grew it into uh you know something pretty remarkable twice uh and i would say that 
eight years from um, 98 to 2006 when um, I moved on. Uh, that was that was my degree in business that mm-hmm. I never bothered to get when I was in school. Yeah, you learned on the job. Yes, Pain I learned by making again. mistakes. Aha, uh-huh. yep. Yes. So you you with that you've learned you learned about investors, you learned about growing a business, adding personnel. Yeah. Um like every mistake that we could possibly make we would do in a spectacular fashion. If you could share one big lesson, what would that be? Well, yeah, make sure you know who you're going into business with and make sure that you've got all your paperwork sorted in advance Mm -hmm. no matter how big or little uh your your goals are uh just making sure everybody's expectations um are understood and documented Mm -hmm. in a way that you know can't come back to ruin the day and your intentions like where you want to see the business end up that too yeah right all kind of all that stuff you can kind of learn that from a band totally can i mean i should have i should have figured it out the i think the one thing that's missing is usually your band was your was your band of brothers and and there was never like one necessarily business guy in the band yeah but that that's not true when you think about it Mm -hmm. it everyone kind of forms takes their role Everyone takes a role, but the people that have the most power in a band, which you learn later, and you learn it's the business side of it, are the people, it's either the lead singer or the people who are writing the songs. Mm. They have they have all the power, especially if you're a, like a, either a session, session musician or, you know, you get picked up, um, you know, you're going to be the first guy they get rid of. Right. Or the first guy to realize, hey, I'm not making as much money as everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I learned that in college with my college band. We were together for about four years, and uh, we got courted by EMI at the time, major label. The guy had us over his mansion, and he's basically not even offering us a full deal, but offering us a demo deal. You know, the, the label will pay for us to go in the studio, record a demo, see how we are in the studio. He loved us live, and it just... I didn't even know. I've been playing this band for four years, but... Half of us didn't even want to be on a major label. And I was like, wait, you don't want to be on a major label? Like, no, no, no. They, one of the band members in this meeting said, EMI, doesn't that, isn't that a subsidiary of some weapons manufacturer? <laughs> to the guy. And the guy just like let him have it. He's like, well, what about your shoes? You know, you like Coca-Cola? You know, we can go on and on with this. Yeah. Casting blame. And then I just, that was a big lesson for me because it's like, wait, I didn't, never thought about asking everyone where we want this to go. You know, we were just right. playing shows like, well, what happens if a major label wants to sign us? We never asked that question. Yeah. And it's the same in business. Sure. Like where, if you go into business with freedom and he doesn't want it to grow, he just wants to keep it at a certain level and you want it to get bigger and bigger, then you should probably talk about that. Yeah. It- Definitely. Or, or at least, um, understand, you know, create your own exit strategies so that you can maintain your, your quality of life. Mm. Um, so knowing that like, once it gets to a certain level, you know, maybe I want you to buy me out cause I don't, this is not something I want to do for the rest of my life. Or right. How, however you want to set it up. It's just, and I guess with him taking an investor, you know that he wants to grow it big. Well, we we both did. We we saw this as an opportunity. We mm-hmm. we wanted to be able to get bigger clients and do bigger jobs, and and you know this was one way to get there, and that's the the way we took. And how did that end up? Well, um, the 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 short story is um, it was you know quite a roller coaster because we managed to be one of the few companies that survived uh y2k mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh the, the one of the bomb. many companies that survived <laughs> yeah. um yeah we we managed to to stay afloat where um you know all these in other, the dot-com bust yeah yeah that was brutal uh yeah 2000 um and 2001 that was that was that was a huge dip but we 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 hung on and we rebuilt it and by 2005, we had partnered with Mendelssohn Zion, which was like a real legit ad agency mm-hmm. um, that did TV and print. And and so ad agencies were buying up 
uh, web design and development firms as fast as they could. To so just have them as a, as a separate department. Yeah, I mean, it's it's either they, they have to start from scratch, it's much easier, because we have no value. The only value we have is goes up and down in the elevator every day. That's the equity you have in a, in a, in a company like that, which is also something I didn't realize till till later. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, okay. So Space Dog, you know, it has a portfolio of clients and it makes money on a, a charging for services. Right. So if there are no clients, it doesn't make money. Um, if someone wants to buy Space Dog just to get to the clients, that has a very finite value. Right. Um, so if you're if you uh, go into uh, an agency like that with with a goal to have a big exit strategy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's often not the case unless maybe you can get acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is this is the one time where uh, we we should have been making more money, and that's kind of where things went went wrong. Is that's when our investor partner kind of pulled a fast one and like went back in time and said, "Well, because um, God, I don't even know how to unravel this in a, in a short way." But basically, he just used some situation from the past to show how anything that we had equity in was gone. And there's a different company that Mendelssohn Zion is acquiring, and and he has 100% of the shares. But he is very generously going to give us shares in this new company. And so that began an epic battle over... Well, wait a minute, because Freedom and I are thinking we started this. This is our company. We started. We've always thought of it as as our company. Yeah. And so, you know, if if anyone um, uh, should have a lot of shares in the company, it, it should be us. Yeah. And was the investor even doing any of the work? Oh, he uh, the documents are, are, are that he had were a joke. I mean, when I finally in two thousand six hired a real honest-to-gosh attorney who knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looked over all the stuff, and, and he wanted the case because he's like, yeah, this guy is a scumbag. And he, I just, I personally want to... Uh, I, I, just, I remember him telling me, going, yeah, this is, this is some straight-up bullshit. He's pulling a fast one on you guys. Yeah, he's like, this stuff is, is so far from professional, so mm-hmm. far from legal. You have all these emails going back and forth that show the intent of what was supposed to mm-hmm. happen. And... Um, he he just he we could never get this guy to like get the doc. It was always he, he was so good at selling. That's one of the reasons we get clients, and he was so good at managing people. Uh-huh, right. That he just like managed you right out of it. And we were getting you know bigger. We we did some huge jobs. We put like airlines on the web. Um, we did Qantas and we did Air Pacific, um, and. I think we did. Uh, we did Carl's Jr. We did, and he got those people because he's a good salesman. Yeah, he's an excellent salesman, and um, so he tried to pull some legal stuff where you guys didn't own any shares of your company. Well, we thought that it was, you know, we each still had like essentially thirty three percent. You know, the original right. three. But uh, that pe- was documented when you went, when you took his when you went into business with him, right? Right. Okay. At some point, we didn't know that um, uh, what Space Dog LLC had somehow mysteriously become Space Dog Inc. Like literally, the name didn't even change. But the Inc. and the LLC is it, different. Two different this corporations. This is the exact same. This is how the Rolling Stones lost their publishing for the U.S. Yeah, I I would like to think that uh, everything I do is copying the Rolling Stones, <laughs> but. That one, I you're basically know. Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd say I was more the Keith. So he he Richards. he pulled this fast one on you where he switched the name at some point. Yeah, he just redid the um, he just redid the paperwork. Um, he was always bolstering the paperwork to look good for a possible acquisition. So mm. he he was pretty good at so all he that did stuff. try to pull a fast one just like that. Yeah, I mean, probably somewhere in his lizard brain. Um, he thought because it was all business and we didn't uh, bring anything up, he probably thought that it was somehow okay. Right. That's uh, I think it's Alan Klein, that lawyer. That that's what he did with the Rolling Stones. He, when he brought them to the U.S., it was 
Rolling Stones U.S. Oh, interesting. And they didn't realize that that's a wholly, totally different thing, company, than the Rolling Stones. Oh, man. So he owned, like, Keith Richards, they didn't get any money for Satisfaction. Like, whenever you hear Satisfaction on the radio in the United States, it all went to him. Well, they got their revenge when the, the Verve stole that sample, and then they got all that Verve publishing. <laughs> so, you know what? The Stones are going to be okay. But, yeah, so, that's still... So your first company is like a big lesson, big learning lesson. Big learning Because you almost lesson. got screwed. Yeah, I mean, and I took it much harder then. Now I look back and I realize, oh... Uh, you probably took it personally. Oh, I took it personally. I also thought there was a lot more value in the company than there really was. Because uh-huh. that's what I go back to. That's what I learned is the value of the company is, in a company like that, is keeping keeping the talent there. And ultimately... If it would have, I mean, it fell apart like five months after I left because uh-huh. four key people left with me. Right. Freedom left, um, our CTO left, our CMO left, um, and, and another high-level programmer. So it pretty much just like took the whole, it'd be like a company today removing the entire C-suite except for the CEO. This is after the acquisition. Yeah. How do they not have it in the contract that if we do acquire you, these core people have to stay on for a minimum of three years? They didn't have that in the contract. And furthermore, um, that's what allowed us to leave is because he had never gotten a proper contract. Because by then, I was finally fucking smart enough to know, oh, I'm not signing an employee contract. And I didn't I didn't really have a grasp of, of why. It was because of the word employee. And, and that's you know where I dug in and I'm like, I'm not an employee. Right. Your owner. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you realized the legal jumbo he was I would, pulling on you. Basically, I would never sign that. Right. If I had signed that contract, yeah. I would have been in a far worse position than I was. Mm-hmm. So I was able to leave, and I knew when I left, even if I didn't say a word or try, there was going to be clients that would not stay there that are going to want to come with you come come with us and our cmo had a friend um who had just started talking to her about maybe doing some work for mtv Mm -hmm. so we knew that that was a possibility and our cmo had also brought in um steeler cosmetics and uh what was it oh and then we had an energy drink um like an organic energy drink and and i personally had done all the work on that i mean i did the branding the packaging the website all this stuff and um like no one else touched it so there's no way that they were going to stay there so that's what happened we um so you all bailed we all bailed and you did get money from the buyout right when they acquired you we didn't get a dime you didn't get anything no No, does your investor get anything when you got acquired i imagine you getting bought out we we basically got good salaries for for once and okay. healthcare right. and the promise of equity. Um, I honestly don't know if I'm not. Even, I don't even want to. I don't even say his name because it's just like I don't even want to give this guy any credibility. Um, uh, but I will tell you, he uh, went on to become the president of MySpace way after MySpace was a joke. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you were going to say the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> no. It, God. Well, yeah. I guess there are worse people out there. Um, so I don't know if he got money. He, he probably got maybe something up uh-huh. front. But, you know, I think it was also a risk because all of a sudden, you know, this ad agency is suddenly paying for... Um, how many of us were there? I think by that time we probably brought 12 people with us. Yeah. And then we ended up hiring more people. And I think by the time um, we were rolling out of there, we might have been about 50 people strong. Wow. <coughs> so they grew it. Yeah. And and I watched the quality go down the toilet. Did they keep the name? The so Space Dog was gone. So space no, they kept the name because we we left and mm-hmm. we started our own company and um, was that highly evolved? That's highly the next evolved, company? yeah. And and Steela came with us and the energy drink came with us. But that us. investor that tried to scam you, he was gone. He tried to sue us, 
and that's you know when I had had that attorney and the good, the good attorney and our, yeah our our attorney basically destroyed them in uh, probably three letters three mm-hmm. back and forth letters that's as far as it got and didn't then, even go to court no they 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 gave up because we threatened to counter sue and mm. um, we, just, we just had all this evidence and it really made this guy not look good to the two uh, primary partners at Mendelssohn Zion right. And, um, and there was also, these guys were older guys too, and they were looking for their exit strategy. So, um, what ended up happening is Japan's second largest agency, Hakuhodo, ended up buying Mendelssohn Zion essentially. And, and then like five months after we left, I mean, SpaceLog just didn't exist anymore. Nice. So with, so with Highly Evolved, it was basically the same company, different name. Yeah, it was, we wanted to go back to what we did in the beginning, you know, where we had less clients, but we had, were able to do quality work. Right. Uh, that's when things were falling apart, where we were taking on clients that uh, I just could not give a wet shit about. Like, we had Secure Horizons, which is like uh-huh. insurance for the elderly or something. Um, there were brands that we'd work on, and I was like, I don't... This this isn't cool or cutting edge, right? Right. Um, this is no how we got into it. it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing we weren't building was any kind of um, any kind of real intellectual property, like anything that could make money without you having to sit there and work right. by the hour. Right, and that's what you want. That's what you're aim. You're going towards passive income. That's basically what you wanted, right? Um. Yes, and you know we thought that the way we were going to get that was by, you know, like creating sites. We've we, we try to create our own sites and different things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so, were you able to grow that company without the uh, salesmanship of that investor? Yeah, because by then we had the portfolio and had a bunch of relationships, right? And we also got um, MTV, um, and they they became. A, they, th- that just allowed us to work on any Viacom property because we became this Viacom authorized agency. Right. So you're they, in the club. Yeah, in a very evil club. <laughs> um. So that yeah that meant that anybody that needed uh, any any digital done, you know, they only had X amount of companies. So we would often get like an RFP, um, you know bid it out and we got a lot of the you got a lot of work to it yeah. yeah they own a million different companies i would imagine yeah they had so many so many properties and um they, so what happened to highly evolved how did that end well that you know that kept going um really almost another eight years mm-hmm. uh i think just kind of life happened to everybody um uh chris and seth uh both of our our programmers um they and their families just wanted to get out of LA. They moved to Portland, so they were working remotely for a while, mm-hmm. and then they separated and made their their own company, just doing development. Mm-hmm. And then we hire them out, and it highly evolved. Just really became Freedom and myself acting as consultants for different things, mm-hmm. and then Freedom got really into you know this idea of um, creating these uh, like kind of political watchdog sites, mm-hmm. and so he really wanted to pursue that and interest changed yeah but we've been friends since you know we were in an early band together called 689 in like 1990 uh-huh. um so we've been friends forever so it this was unlike the previous situation which was you know very um tumultuous. hostile and yeah. tumultuous this this was really chill it was, mm-hmm. it was more like i'd say the last two years of highly evolved if I would say Freedom and I probably didn't even work on the same project except here and there. Like right. he would take on some stuff just enough to so that he could continue working on. Um, he was more of a programmer, so mm-hmm. he he'd do some back end development or something, and 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 then I I just started like essentially working for myself. Right. And then how? What did that bring? How, to is that what? How did you end up buying Bedrock and a? a 40,000 square foot building. That that was uh like in 2009 um you know after 
doing highly evolved and saving up some money and mm-hmm. and uh whatnot i if i was still going hard at music mm-hmm. that's that's another thing is when you work for yourself um you realize that oh that's that's pretty awesome if you can create a situation where i can still make music priority whenever i want it to be a priority yeah. or wherever i can mm-hmm. um so throughout all of this you're still making music you're yeah, still from, gigging from 1996 when i really just started doing freelance design you know that's that was the last time i ever cashed a paycheck mm-hmm. um yeah i was you know either working for my own company or just working as a freelancer building my own my own business um and uh so 2009 um i had uh i was looking to get another rehearsal spot Mm -hmm. um i had come back from working like a really big gig in in new york um that paid really well it was like a long-term consulting gig um it was uh for zagat yeah and um but then you were looking for a rehearsal space for your band so yeah once that job was was finished yeah um and zagat ended up getting acquired by google Mm -hmm. um i've heard of them zagat google google you've heard of google yeah yeah they're (laughs) they're supposed to be something else i think they'll they'll be pretty big someday who knows I think AOL's gonna. So you're looking for a rehearsal space back. for your music, like a monthly rehearsal. I was looking space. for a lockout space, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I because I was working in New York, I gave up my spot at Downtown Rehearsal, mm-hmm. which was a big rehearsal space in LA. Yes, mm-hmm. it was in Downtown LA. It was uh, in a super scary, dodgy part. Yeah, and it was in this old, crappy building with one freight elevator that would often go out. Um, it was the second, third, and fifth floor of that building, mm-hmm. so it held like 200 bands, probably, mm-hmm. maybe more. I don't know because a lot of times you'd squeeze three plus bands to a room. It's a it's a strange spot to have rehearsal space because it's so sketchy down there, and there's homeless people wandering around all the all over the place. Well, when it's I kind was, of abandoned too. Yeah, when I was first there, there weren't even homeless people because there's like. There's, there were no like even like gas stations or liquor stores or anything else around. Mm-hmm. So like there was, it was commercial. So 5 p.m. It was, it would just become a ghost town after right. that, you know, except for this one building, Seventh yeah. uh, and Santa Fe. And uh, so when I came back, I, I called him to get a room, and I thought because I'd been there for so long, you know, and I knew the guys running it, um, they, they either find a room that wanted to share something you know i thought well they'll at least want to talk to me i couldn't even get a call back yeah no clout if i had zero they had no customer loyalty and no customer loyalty (laughs) uh couldn't even figure out what was going on i'm you know all i could do was was call um uh they didn't have like an office it wasn't like i could go down there and right you know it's like you had to catch them when they were around and they so they pissed just off the wrong person no, it, it just like <laughs> did you put them out of business are I, they out of business now that ironically that that building is gone they lost they had two buildings and, uh-huh. and yeah that one um they lost that building and uh by then bedrock was really well established and we already had were full and we had a huge waiting list but i remember our waiting list like ballooned we we had like a probably like a 600 email uh like email list of people that signed up because they were waiting to find out about um getting a lockout and i you know by the time uh are you telling me if they returned your phone call and got you a room you might not have ever i might not i might not have started bedrock (laughs) yeah um so out of desperation uh i'm looking for another space and uh, a friend of mine Adam Aronson, who's a great, awesome drummer, has played with a bunch of different people. Um, early days, he played with uh, Thrill Kill Cult, mm-hmm. um, literally a cult classic. <laughs> um, and then he went on to play with a bunch of other bands. And I think the last one he was in was We Are Scientists. Uh, great guy, great drummer. Um, you know, scrappy, always, always uh, 
managed to make things happen or whatever. And so he turned me on to this building that some people had gotten the lease and they wanted to do like this weird ass idea that they got when they were in Seattle of, of doing like a brew pub that was also uh, like a rehearsal spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really needed a rehearsal spot. And so when I was talking to him, I was thinking, I was looking at it and I was thinking, you know, um, if this was done right, if this had all the things that I hated about downtown rehearsal, um, that I think you could fix, yeah. how, how hard could it be? It was really me saying, okay, I'll jump into this because I see this opportunity and I'm, I'm just, I'm really confident that if you treat people nice and mm-hmm. you, uh, have decent gear and you have a vibe, mm-hmm. um, people are going to use your place over other other places. So, Yeah, your, your rehearsal building, it's first of all, it's in Echo Park, which is a desirable location. It's where a lot of musicians already live. Yeah, because the, digi- the digital delay is free in Echo Park. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we'll edit that one out. Please do. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, you created a community, and I remember that about downtown rehearsal. There's, there's no vibe. There's no, no. community. You feel like you're getting ripped off for some reason. I don't you, know why. No, but. you're 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 fighting over um, who gets to the elevator, and if a band's hogging the elevator, all you are is mad at the other people in the building. Yeah. Or if they're too loud, like we used to rehearse next door to the Melvins, and they were so loud. They're loud. That when they would rehearse, I mean, we couldn't even have a conversation. Mm-hmm. We'd have we we would have to shout at each other, <laughs> you know. And some of our songs had dynamics, so right. <laughs> it was really quiet. There would just you know be thunder fuzz coming through the walls. Yeah. Um, and that was the other thing is why can't the insulation be a little bit better between rooms? Right. How hard is it to do that? Turns out it's pretty hard. And musicians in these states are already like the wind is blowing against their sail. They're already treated like crap everywhere. They're not everywhere. they're underpaid. You know, so at least your home, which is your rehearsal space, you'd want to feel good about it. Yeah, that's the one thing people would do at downtown. You know, when you're when you're either a session guy or you're playing with a bunch of different people or you're auditioning for bands, you get to see a lot of rehearsal spaces. Mm-hmm. So I became a unwilling expert at hourly rehearsal, lockout yeah. rehearsal. I've been in every situation you could think of. I've rehearsed in public storage facilities. Uh, yes. I mean, I've. <laughs> basements whatever um type of uh rehearsal situation you can think of i've probably yes. done it and worse my college band rehearsed in a public store in a storage space which is rough <laughs> everything plugged into the uh extension cord that you've got the one overhead light strange hums pissing in buckets in the corner it's not good yeah <laughs> it's it's unsanitary at best yes so Um, you started this thing and you basically knocked out a bunch of rehearsal spaces yeah so um again thanks to my eight-year unofficial business degree yeah i knew that the people that had the lease on the building i read their business plan and after talking with them i realized oh man these people are just they're felony stupid none of this stuff is gonna work Uh but um, I negotiated a deal because, you know, they, they, the, term, the building. Yeah. Well, I'll, it, not at first, at first I negotiated a deal with them just to sublease a chunk of space. Okay. And then that's where all of my skills, life skills, uh, design skills, marketing skills and musical knowledge. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like a, a perfect storm uh, coming together because I had all the tools necessary to build like a good brand. And so I, they didn't even have the name. Uh, they were, uh, they were called ER pro LLC. Uh That was, that was their corporate name. Um, so, uh, we came up with the name bedrock and I did the branding and I started the, bedrock rehearsal llc all by myself and and i told him like when they're i I was i was not dishonest at all i'm like i can't until your paperwork makes sense 
we can't combine businesses. Right. And they really couldn't argue with that because that's just the that's just the way it was. So it got to the point where their plans were really crumbling. Like they just, everything that I was certain we would run into at some point ended up even being worse than I imagined. Like I knew it was going to be difficult because of liquor licensing yep. to get a brew pub and a rehearsal thing in the same place. Yeah. But the building's technically two addresses smushed together. Uh-huh. And um, they had me believe that there was a path forward because they are technically two separate buildings. And if we made this one, just the brew pub and they had some other crazy ideas. Like they, they wanted to have, at first, it started out. It was going to have a hotel in it, and because it was a huge building and it was two stories, yeah, and there was all this space. Uh, but they they just had some really dumb ideas um, that never came to pass. Thank God. Um, so when their stuff started to crumble and um, and they weren't able really to make the lease payment, um, you know, by then I was I was taking up quite a bit of space mm-hmm. in there, and Bedrock itself was was starting to do well right you know by then we had the recording studios mm-hmm. we had the hourly rehearsal studios i had opened um a repair department because mm-hmm. um, the smartest thing you can do if if you've got a facility is have your repairs in-house which is great for musicians because you rehearse there you could leave your gear where you rehearse to get it repaired yeah makes sense but it, honestly the value came from having a guy who could fix all of our gear mm-hmm. and having he, a good guy. He eventually became my business partner. Yeah. I like gifted him equity because he worked his ass off and he brought so much to the table yep. and now he runs the place and you're, so I don't have to, you don't have to do much. I don't do runs anything itself. anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, only cause I'm in New York. If I was in LA, I'd be more involved cause I just love being there. The vibe's great. Yeah. I love all the people that work there and, yep. um, it, yeah, it's just awesome. So, so do you own that building or did you lease it? No, it was the building was leased, and I was always afraid to sign a commercial lease because you have mm-hmm. to put all your personal uh, stuff up. Oh. And um, you know, at that time in two thousand nine, um, I had just start. Two thousand nine is the worst time to start a business because that's when everything crashed. That's just when. Oh like yeah, t- 2010. It started to but kind sometimes, of get better. Yeah, but if you you know you um see you read stuff. I see Freakonomics over there. <laughs> um, sometimes uh, at the bottom of the market is the best time to start a business. Mm, right. Um, you know, landlords willing to work with you. Right. Um, there, there's a lot of things you can do in a in a in a depressed situation. So you have a little more leeway. Yeah. Um, so what do you do in that situation? Because you're obviously investing a lot of money in insulation and rooms. And- well, that was the thing. I was smart enough to invest in equipment, stuff that I could turn around and sell if things didn't work out. Right. I, I refused to put any money into the building mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I'm just I'm just really giving you guys rent here. Um, so they, they paid to build it out. They, they paid to insulate each soundproof each room? Yep. You got them to do that? That was part of the deal. They they wanted to build out the rehearsal studios. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they wanted it to be all one company, but they were essentially just managing the lockout studios. Wow! And by that time, I I was uh, my company was doing all of the services, mm-hmm. um, and I had brought all those people in, and and I have one other uh, partner who was running the uh, recording part of it but the people that own the building why would they okay so here's what happened is when these people started to run out of money and they could the people that own the building no the people that got the lease on the building the brew pub the brew pub people couldn't make the brew pub happen ran out of money um couldn't finish building out in order to run out to more bands to then you know make the lease payment and all, all of their uh everything was just like it was a shit show um, and so the owner of the building came to myself and, and Phil and Comron, who are now my, um, partners, uh, and was like, okay, here's the situation is like, do you guys want to lease the building? Cause they're, we're taking them to court and they're getting kicked out. But mm-hmm. clearly you guys, it turns out you guys own the name and the 
business and the phone number and everything that makes this a business. And, you know, we, what can we work out here? And I just refused to sign uh, a lease because, you know, at that time I owned a house, I had equity in a couple businesses right. as well. And um, I just, I didn't want to risk any of that for, for something that I started, you know, just to see if I could do this. And yeah. while I really enjoyed it, I didn't want to take that much of a, of a risk. So I just, we ended up working out a different kind of deal um, where we essentially manage the building. Um, so we're not responsible for the upkeep on the place, which hugely expensive. So they manage the building. Yeah, the owner of the building. Right. They own the building outright. Yeah. And um, and so the anything that breaks, like the AC or electrical or, you know, we've had all kinds of things go wrong, mm -hmm. you know. And they, they have to take care of all that. Yeah, but they're equipped to do it. Right. They own a bunch of buildings. That's the business they're in. Right. They're, they're you know, they have a buy and hold on. But my question is, why would they pay to soundproof all those rooms? No, they no. That's why it's confusing. Is 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 they didn't build out those rooms right. um, that I'm talking about. Uh, it was the people that had the lease. They were the building out. Yes. Oh, okay. They were building out all the rooms. Right. And um, I was just uh, starting to occupy more and more of them because right. I could guarantee them regular rent. Oh, so you're you're paying money to the brew pub people? Yeah, I'm. As I said, I'm essentially subleasing. Subleasing, right? Yeah. So when that all fell apart, then that's when the owner of the building came to us, and we right. we, we worked out this deal, which I was much more comfortable with because the the best case scenario was is if we could have bought the building. Yeah. But it would it would have been somewhere between four or five million dollars, and then you have to upkeep it all. Yeah. Right. And. But with this, you want to make sure you have a nice long lease because you're investing all this time and money. Exactly. That if it's gone in two years, you don't even have time to recoup after you bought all that gear. Right. Well, I, this was three years into it. So we had already acquired quite a bit of gear mm -hmm. um, over, over that time. And we were just lucky because of the zoning laws in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So that building used to be a jewelry manufacturing plant. has no windows. It's just mm. this big, solid brick building. So no, it could never be residential. It could be, but the last person that tried to take something that was zoned in the way that this building was, it took them almost 10 years to get it rezoned. Whoa. And those are those condominiums you see. If, if you're familiar with Los Angeles, there's a bunch of condominiums that went up on Glendale Boulevard by the 5 Freeway. Mm -hmm. And it, it took... It, you a know, beautiful it was, place to live. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Uh, so that freeway fresh air. So um, do you have a nice long lease, I hope? So we don't have a lease because I refused to sign a lease. Uh -huh. And I knew that the building um, couldn't really become something else very easily. Right. And uh, so we worked out uh, a different kind of deal. And it's, it's you know, more based on, on performance. And we're getting them way more rent than they would have gotten if they had leased the building okay so it's a win-win yeah they're i mean they're they're happy but they're real estate people so they're always looking to see you know can you guys raise the rents yeah <laughs> they, they want to get the most that they can get of course yeah. well that's that's their business model i get it so you know sometimes that becomes a point of contention because we're mm -hmm. always on the musician's side that was one of the reasons we started it is the other part of it is it had to be affordable too right you yeah. know um and it's turned into now it's it's like we service tons of touring bands we have you know mostly pro clients you know when it first started like the weekends and nights were packed mm -hmm. you know now we're it's busy like monday through friday during the day yeah and you have solid income with the monthly rentals people are there for yeah so there's over 100 lockout rooms yeah. they're all full mm -hmm. um so that's that's how we managed to uh build out the rest of the space is is we we were telling the landlord look um you know, if you subdivide these remaining uh, things, if you if you do it right, you know, we'll, we'll get bands in here and they'll they'll pay they'll pay a bit more than they were paying at downtown rehearsal, but they'll get something out of it because they'll be in rooms that have better soundproofing, they're air conditioned, right? Um, and you know, you're in this cool community. We have parking and it's in a safe neighborhood. Every band that I played in that had um, uh, like a female singer or a female. Uh, uh, musician 
um, I just remember so many times where they'd be coming to downtown rehearsal and it's like they didn't want to walk from their car to right <laughs> to the building alone and couldn't blame them. That was yeah, or the bathrooms are disgusting. Yeah. Oh. Oh my God. No yeah. toilet paper ever. Yeah. 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 The worst things happen in those bathrooms. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. So this is finally your passive income. I mean, it's just it just runs itself. There's there's high demand. You don't really have to do much. You have someone running it. Yeah, we um, we we took it as far as we could, and 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 they're still building. Um, you know, we we have a rental department, so we found ways to make money that didn't even require the 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 building as much. Right. Um, like when space was full, you start getting creative, figuring out how you can provide other services, and uh, and and then just just like keeping an eye on what people really need mm -hmm. instead of just like every other rehearsal place stoically sticking to this is what we do this is right. how we do it um we just started making changes we realized you know what a lot of touring musicians now don't necessarily need a recording studio but they do need a place where they can like plug in their laptop and have speakers and a monitor in mm -hmm. a controlled environment and be able to do overdubs so we created these um, writing rooms mm, mm -hmm. and those those turned out to be great because you know it's like labels will pay for those they'll pay for writers to go in there for, sometimes for weeks at a time yep and then we also got into um it gets used for uh as a film location spot all the time for mixing film no not oh, at for, all. oh for shooting yeah. location yeah like uh I mean, and it'll be something not even related to music. It'll be some skincare brand that just wants to shoot a commercial in a recording studio. But you also, you got a pretty well-known artist to paint the whole building. Yeah. The, um, now, that was, that was a marketing decision. That was just a cool thing to do. But, uh -huh. but yeah, it certainly, uh, it certainly made it so that everyone knew that building. And it, it doesn't have our name on it, except just on the awning in the parking lot right which you can't even see from the street right so everybody knows bedrock from that massive mural that um a company uh an art collective called circle with a y c-y-r-c-l-e these brilliantly talented artists they do um, stuff all over the world big yeah and this is i i believe if i have the story correct it's one piece of eight pieces that all have uh, a collective meaning and are are part of one big piece that's scattered across the. Now, who's who's this, whose idea was that? Well, because that's a, that's a pretty brilliant idea to take this big building and make make it such a visual experience. I right. mean, everyone's going to talk about. Oh, did you see that huge building with this beautiful mural all over it? Yeah, I can't. I can't take credit for for having the idea to to go find a muralist it was more about um we ended up having a canvas that's like in a really in a location that's sixty thousand cars a day drive by right um and if you recall uh i mentioned that bedrock has no windows and no right, doors. Right, right. it has a door <laughs> um, but even the door even the uh the roll-up door is yeah. painted yeah too um so no, we just we lucked out having the canvas. So when the opportunity came to us, we were mm. like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah," um, right. and we we talked the building owner into it. I mean, it's like, dude, you're getting you're getting a free coat of paint on the on the building because it was sponsored by um, like Benjamin Moore, the paint company, and and you know they had some backing. So uh, the only thing I had to pay for out of pocket was a scissor lift rental for a month wait the whole having that artist come paint that whole mural on the building was paid for by benjamin moore and whoever sponsors uh you know whoever the patrons are of of, of circle I, I think there's other people involved too i know we got oh, the paint okay. um from benjamin moore for wow free. nicely done yeah i mean if someone paid for that mural yeah that'd be a hundred thousand i don't know yeah well, it took them a month to do yeah these guys worked so hard it's intricate too yeah yeah oh that that's why i just you know uh sometimes just have to remember i just got very lucky doing what i do because you know there's people that are so talented that they can 
turn a building into a piece of like I could never do that. Yeah, well, I'll put links in the to it in the show notes. So if you're listening, if you've made it this far, there's links in the show <laughs> notes to check out. If you haven't jumped in the tub and <laughs> opened a couple veins, <laughs> so this brings us to your to now. Your your you. If you say so. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a business in between that? I did. Um, I did start with um, some people uh, that I had worked with, one one from MTV and um, who had introduced me to uh, someone that he knew. And um, so I was early on starting an influencer marketing company, uh-huh. which now is just a freaking buzzword. Yeah. But at the time, this would have been 2010. Influencer marketing company. So basically you find people, celebrities and notable types to market for companies. Yeah, essentially, it's it, it, that's what it boils down to today. Is it's connecting brands with uh, influential Instagrammers and right. Facebookers and Tweeterers. Yes, I think Kanye West will tweet your company for. Last I heard, it was fifty grand for one tweet. Um, it can go a lot more than that. Yeah, he's probably more now. This is a few years ago. It, it's ridiculous what brands will pay for that, and it's if you actually look at the analytics, that's one of the dumbest ways to spend money because yes. a tweet comes and goes so fast and there's not a lot of engagement and um that's why influencer marketing works is because someone who has an instagram following of ten thousand to a hundred thousand they post something Mm -hmm. you know like 25 percent of the people are going to interact with it they're going to like it they're going to share it right kim kardashian tweets and it just goes yeah. goes by so so quickly. BuzzFeed, too. I mean, a lot of the BuzzFeed articles are actually product placements. Very, yeah. Very subtly done. Um, yeah, so th- it, was, it was early days uh, for that. And so my part of that was helping, well, besides doing the branding of the company and the, and the site and the look and feel and helping build out all the, um, like, how we do proposals and whatnot, I was working on the technology side of it, trying to set up more of a platform that was the automated side of it. Mm -hmm. But it it really turned out that, um, and I, we still work together now. Like I, I do campaigns now and use this company, Mm -hmm. um, which is called Zomad. And, uh, you know, we do some pretty great things together. Do you have equity in Zomad? Yeah. Okay. So So I was, because I was one of the first people on, even though I didn't start start the company yeah i have i have a little bit of uh of founders equity plus i really like the people doing it and i I want it to succeed so i you know do anything for those guys so that kind of brought you into your current company which is brand marketing yeah so um that along with everything else that i was doing kind of uh evolved into uh what's what's now the boathouse and that's because um, I met a guy that I, who's a really brilliant storyteller and, and director and, and just understands the video and broadcast side of the business for digital and traditional um, so well. It's like I could kind of go back to what we almost had at the last uh, throws of Space Dog and Mendelssohn Zion where we were doing like pretty big integrated campaigns Mm -hmm. like um this will give you another reason to hate me we were responsible for that paris hilton carl's jr campaign i don't remember that what is that you don't remember the one it was for the spicy jalapeno six dollar burger and she's crawling all over a uh um a bentley oh yeah and it was very sexual right yeah it did Let's just say the writing on this commercial was yeah. non-existent. Right, right. It was, um, let's have... It was like a juicy burger and the liquid poured down. Yeah, because uh, this was coming off the, uh, if it doesn't get all over the place, it doesn't belong in your face yes, campaign. Yes, yes, Yeah. And so this is when Paris Hilton was at the apex of her Paris Hilton-ness. Mm. And the catchphrase, if you recall, that's hot. right. Which she tried to patent or trademark or something Probably. like that. Probably. Yeah. And yeah, so Carl Jr. got her to say that about a one of their ridiculous burgers. 
And you're responsible for that? We're responsible <laughs> for the, the the website and the digital marketing side of that. And then, um, you know, it was all under one banner, the commercial and and everything, because we were Carl, Carl Jr. and Hardy's, like, agency of record for everything, I think, at that time. Uh-huh. Um, so why do you keep... what what Just to wrap this up, why do you keep working? I mean, you probably have enough from Bedrock and your other endeavors... What drives you? Um, You're here in New York now. You're starting. You started a new company, fairly new. It's growing. What's yeah, driving it's growing, you? It's growing like gangbusters, and I think it's because um, you know we're getting like the type of clients that we've always dreamed about having. Yeah. Sometimes uh, th- those dreams can turn into nightmares, but it's still it's still good work. It's still visible work. It's also we get an opportunity to really do things uh, the way we like. And we're small enough that we only take on clients we think we can... Um, either we believe in the client wholeheartedly and mm-hmm. we just, you know, it, we want them to be the Robin Hood of their industry and take everybody by storm. Or, you know, it's a client like Apple who's, you know... I've heard of them, too. Yeah, you might have heard of them. They've, they've made so you enjoy here. what you do. Yeah, I like I like building things and seeing mm-hmm. the result. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- I, there's just there's still other things that that I want to be able to build. And and by taking on this client work, it helps finance the things where we don't have money. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll take we'll take a an Apple gig, or we'll take you know we have RCN, which is an internet provider, um, and uh, you know we have quite a few good clients and then we'll also take on people that don't have any money to spend right um we're helping a health ai platform mm-hmm. um because i i think the ceo of the company is amazing i think their platform is amazing right. but they haven't really um even fully launched yet so they don't have budgets to do to do things but we we want to launch them in a big way so um we we get to work on that because are you are you aware because like throughout this story of your life there's one thing that leads to another so as you're Mm -hmm. going through this company are you aware that someone might cross your path that will kind of like spark something in you that might lead to your next company well um I think it's about just recognizing the opportunities when when they come up the ones that really really have legs and um it's also maintaining just really good relationships with with people that that you admire mm-hmm. um it, it's one thing to keep a relationship because someone works at a certain place and they can you know potentially give you access to work but if you can somehow make make friends with with people who you believe do things better than you do right and you, you can you can make those connections those, right. those are the best because uh more challenging interesting things come, it's like come that about. saying you're only surround yourself with people that are better than you you're only as good as the five people around you totally i mean um everything we do is a, a, a team effort it's uh not like one person carries the ball across the finish line mm-hmm. there's a lot there's a lot involved especially in some of these bigger campaigns because they they have pretty long tails to them sometimes um, if you had any advice to someone looking to start their own business, do you think you'd be able to parlay anything from your experience? Um, well, we already we already learned the first rule of it, which is like document everything. Know know your expectations. Know uh, if you're in business with partners. Mm-hmm. Um, know everybody's roles and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. What value that has, whether it's an equity or if you're trying to take a salary against the company um and then know everybody's exit strategy uh or what they want to be when they grow up right um <laughs> and it's uh, what vision ha- you, having the same vision it, yeah it's it's also hugely important that you have yeah. a, a shared vision um until you can get to a point where uh you're big enough that you could split off and kind of kind of do other things but yeah um let's see god there's there's so there's so many 
business tips uh, that can roll through your head and, and cliches and everything. But I'd say the other thing is, is really try to like the people you're working with. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't go into business when you see an opportunity, but you really don't like either the person or something else that's connected to it. There's never, it's never going to turn out well. Mm-hmm. That is very, very true and very wise. You learn a lot in bands. Bands, it's very similar. It is. A business with a band. Uh, you know, bands that get anywhere are mm-hmm. bands that uh, treat what they do as a business and they're, and they're good at handling it. Mm-hmm. And all this, throughout all this, you've kept making music. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd say these days is where I'm the lightest on doing music, but I'm also the heaviest on um, being involved in a bunch of stuff. I mean, I'm even trying to help a music product get to uh, um, fruition, mm-hmm. like an actual physical piece of hardware for musicians that I think solves problems every music every every musician that uh, makes music with a computer has. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, getting to work on something like that, um, do we want to divulge what that is yet? Yeah, it's pipes. Uh, have I shared that with you yet? Pipes. What is pipes? Tell the listeners what pipes is. Pipes is a portable audio computer with a touchscreen interface that is, uh, it'll outperform a laptop, but it just does one thing really well. It, you can trigger up to 20,000 samples Mm -hmm. instantaneously. There's like zero, there's. I can't say there's zero latency. There's zero detectable latency. The latency is 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 like four milliseconds. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, my friend Vince DeFranco, who um, is also uh, an entrepreneur, and he is uh, just an incredibly talented um, engineer, mm-hmm. both on the audio side and on um, you know the physical product side. Yeah. Uh, you know he's he's uh, he's done worked with like prince and stevie wonder and uh tool and a bunch mm-hmm. of cool bands that i admire so you're already starting another <laughs> business here this is what's yeah happening. this is something i'm able to to do because you know i have the client work and then i right. can spend the other half of the time doing the stuff that i really want to do right um and vince is amazing he's a guy who invented the dimension beam or the d beam you probably if you have any roland gear in here you might have the the d beam on there what is the d beam that's that um, uh, uh, light sensor. Yeah, that, it's like a theremin kind of thing. Essentially, yeah. yeah. It's it's basically like uh, control voltage right. uh, that changes instead of with a potentiometer. It changes uh, mm-hmm. by the distance of your hand mm-hmm. to the to using infrared light. All right, so you're already on to the next. Very inspiring, Cosmo. Thanks Thank for sharing your uh, your life story with us sharing is caring so your mom must be very proud i probably (laughs) she's she's still my biggest fan yeah from the start yep Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's the one thing you know to wrap it up even though we started off on kind of like a rocky terrain um (laughs) uh, yeah at the at the end of the day uh, no matter how crappy my piece of artwork is or how shitty my band was my Mm -hmm. mom always thought it was great she never held me back from doing that stuff she, she thought that nbc sitcom was amazing amazing so <laughs> funny <laughs> thanks cosmo all right bud <laughs>